0: From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So these days, our attention is pretty much up for grabs. And the stuff that's trying the hardest to get it is usually right at our fingertips. And while we think we're the ones who get to decide how to spend our time, Is that really the truth?
1: What what does it mean to manipulate people, to persuade or pull on on their their instincts?
0: This is Tristan Harris. And Tristan used to be part of the tech industry. He was a design ethicist at Google.
1: And I was there for about a year working first on, you know, sort of assistant-like features in Inbox, which became sort of the next version of Gmail. But then... After basically spending his whole career in Silicon
0: Valley, something in Tristan changed.
1: As much as we wanted to make life better for people and explain things to people, uh, at the end of the day, it was about capturing attention. You know, how would we hook people into spending more time on the screen or driving more page views or uh, getting people to click on ads? And I didn't like that. And so you started to see technology not as a vehicle for improving people's lives, but really as a means to persuade people to do things. And so persuasion became the dominant way that I came to see everything in the world. You know, you get disenchanted when you see how much of all this time that we spend in front of screens and clicking on these buttons and inviting people to connect and accepting invitations and, you know, liking back articles and, and getting back to people, and you just say, what is this adding up to? You know, what what? how is this actually Better for life.
0: On the show today, ideas about manipulation, about the things that can make us believe and act in certain ways, sometimes without us even knowing, from our addiction to smartphones to the rise of fake news, even the ways we remember and experience our lives. And for Tristan Harris, Manipulation is
1: about how we use technology and how some tech companies use us. You know, it's not like a smartphone is a device that you access. You don't access your smartphone. You live by your smartphone. People wake up in the morning and it's like 80% of people, the first thing they do, they turn out of bed and they, they pull their smartphone out, right? And they see what's on the screen. The second you know, that, that happens, it's like they're programming their whole mind and their day to think about things in a certain way. If you, are, if you use a smartphone or you, are, or you use the internet today, are you being manipulated? I think by definition, to look at the screen, to use the internet, thoughts and choices enter the flow of our experience that were not authored by us. And more and more of our thoughts during the day come from the things that we have been thinking about and seeing from the screens that we're constantly checking. You know, you don't have to be using the screen every moment for it to be guiding your thoughts, right? And so invisibly, um, the entire, you know, it's like the David Foster Wallace, this is water speech. You know, we're swimming in this water or the fish and you ask the other fish, you know, what do you, how do you like this water we're swimming in? And he says, what's water? You know, we're swimming in this digital environment that is created, you know, and handcrafted by a handful of companies with deliberate goals to capture human attention. And now you have 2 billion people, which is like, was it 25% of the world's population and 90% of the world's GDP, whose thoughts are shaped by this handful of uh, 20 to 40, 35-year-old, mostly engineers and designers in California. Uh, Neil Postman, you know, one of my favorite deep thinkers about how technology affects society, said, what is the problem for which this technology is the solution? Tristan
0: Harris laid out his case on the TED
1: stage. The Internet is not evolving at random. The reason it feels like it's sucking us in the way it is is because of this race for attention. We know where this is going. Technology is not neutral. And it becomes this race to the bottom of the brainstem of who can go lower to get it. Let me give you an example of Snapchat. Snapchat. If you didn't know, Snapchat is the number one way that teenagers in the United States communicate. So if you're like me and you use text messages to communicate, uh, Snapchat is that for teenagers. And there's like 100 million of them that use it. And they invented a feature called Snapstreaks, which shows the number of days in a row that two people have communicated with each other. In other words, what they just did is they gave two people something they don't want to lose. Because if you're a teenager and you have 150 days in a row, you don't want that to go away. And so think of the little blocks of time that that schedules in kids' minds. This isn't theoretical. When kids go on vacation, it's been shown they give their passwords up to, to, up to five other friends to keep their snap streaks going, even when they can't do it. And they have like 30 of these things, and so they have to get through photo, taking photos of just pictures or walls or ceilings just to get through their day. So it's not even like they're having real conversations. We have a temptation to think about this as, oh, they're just using uh, Snapchat the way we used to gossip on the telephone. It's probably OK. Well, what this misses is that in the 1970s, when you were just gossiping on the telephone, there wasn't 100 engineers on the other side of the screen who knew exactly how your psychology worked and orchestrated you into a double bind with each other. I mean it's like it's, –
0: it's a, it's a little bit like – and I, I don't want to take this analogy too far uh, – of how tobacco companies have known for a long time how to grow you know tobacco with, with either no or low nicotine. But, but they didn't. They actually increased the amount of nicotine.
1: That's right and this is even worse than that and I'm not trying to be alarmist but the reason why it's different than just tobacco is that it's actually social. You know there's always this narrative of oh you know we always worry about new technologies. People worried about newspapers on the subway, we're not talking to each other. People worried about TV, we're just going to amuse ourselves to death, which is honestly partially true. You know human beings are resilient, but what this misses is there's is three new elements that get missed in this conversation. The first is that we've never had a medium that was so totalizing. Two billion people checking 150 times a day from the moment that they get up in the morning to every bathroom break, to every coffee line, to every, you know, going to sleep at night. So it's a totalizing kind of environment. You know, we go from using a product to being jacked into the matrix, except the matrix is this sort of soft invisible matrix that's kind of created by a few different companies, Apple, Google, and Facebook. The second one is that it's social, right? TV, radio didn't didn't say, these are where your friends are hanging out and where you've been left out. Uh, we never made it easier to show what you should be jealous of in other people's lives. And the last thing is that it's intelligent and personalized, and it gets better every day. So, you know, TV or radio didn't watch what you looked at and then tried to dynamically change the course of the television show. Whereas Facebook is a monolithic AI that basically says every single time you click, you're teaching us what will keep you here.
0: What, I mean, what you're suggesting is that there are a handful of companies, maybe three, four, or five, that have more manipulative power over, over the human species than anything or anyone has had it any time in our history.
1: Absolutely. And this is the thing that people miss. It's like, why are we so obsessed with governments? I mean, 2 billion people use Facebook every day. That's more than the number of followers of Christianity. 1.5 billion people use YouTube every day, every day. And that's more than the number of followers of Islam. So these things have an enormous amount of influence more than any other government over people's daily thoughts and beliefs. So (laughs) You know, for everything we want governments to be held accountable to, why in the world would we not have something that holds technology companies accountable to human values as opposed to just capturing attention, which is the only thing that they answer to is the stock market and capturing attention?
0: Well, I mean, that's a thing.
1: I mean, you're talking about this incredible
0: ability to manipulate our thoughts and our choices. But... I think in response, these companies would say, well, well, these are choices people make. We live in a, in a capitalistic society. I mean, we are businesses. And of course, we're vying for people's attention because that translates into, into money.
1: This is an old story. This isn't new.
0: Businesses have been doing this since time immemorial.
1: Yeah. Well, this is um, the classic defense that the companies make is if you don't like the product, just use a different product. But this is so dishonest <laughs> because if you're a teenager... And all of your friends, all the conversations they have, all the parties that they go to, if it's through Snapchat, are you gonna choose not to use Snapchat? You know, the, I've studied cults uh, in my research on persuasion and I've actually gone into cults. And one of the things that cults do is they pull on you by, by pulling on all your friends. If they, can, if they can make it so that all of your friends are just the people who are in the cult, you can't leave the cult. And the thing about social media, is that all of your friends are in the cult. So, I'm here today because the costs are so obvious. I don't know a more urgent problem than this because this problem is underneath all other problems. It's not just taking away our agency to spend our attention and live the lives that we want. It's changing the way we have our conversations, it's changing our democracy, and it's changing our ability to have the conversations and relationships we want with each other. And it affects everyone, because a billion people have one of these in their pocket.
0: I mean, every time we think that we've we've sort of cracked the code as humans, like, you know, we've created this thing where you can always be connected to everyone and, and everything. But every time we seem to introduce something like that, someone figures out how to game it.
1: Yeah. The history of the tech industry is filled with positive intentions and good ideas that are incomplete and gameable. Right? And they're incomplete because they don't capture all the other externalities. The more these attention companies profit, they, pu- they, they profit while pushing all of the social and inner externalities downstream because it's polluting our inner world and it's polluting our social cohesion and our ability to actually understand each other because we have to agree on reality. If we can't agree on reality, then we can't solve some of the most existential threats that face us. And so this is why we have to change the system. This is not you know, a fun philosophical conversation. I'm here because this is literally an existential threat to our future and and to our present. And elections around the world are still being shaped. An entire polarization of societies is being shaped today by this algorithm. And the need for accountability is enormous. Tristan Harris.
0: He's a former design ethicist at Google. And he now works at the nonprofit Time Well Spent, which is trying to reform the tech industry. You can see Tristan's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about manipulation. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Wells Fargo, funders of a grant to Coalfield Development Corporation, where Adam Warren trains Appalachians for jobs in solar installation.
1: We're trying to keep people here so that they don't have to leave. They can live and work in the communities they grew up in doing something else.
0: Wells Fargo is building better every day. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash better. Thanks also to Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients. Get $30 off your first meal plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com/radiohour. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about manipulation, about truth and lies, and what happens when sometimes it's hard for people to see the difference.
3: I think manipulation is trying to get somebody to think a certain way or act a certain way. And I think that certainly in my line of work, it's a step beyond what most journalists think their role is. This is Ali Velshi. I am an anchor and uh, co-host of uh, a couple of shows at MSNBC and NBC News. I mean, so, I mean, when it comes to your self-image as a
0: reporter, as a journalist, like, I mean, I'm assuming you think of yourself as a somebody who's trying
3: to seek the truth. Right. An arbiter, a truth seeker to some degree uh, an advocate for my viewers or readers or listeners. So it was almost the opposite in my mind of manipulation. It was the idea that if I can give you the fullest picture, the most information and answer the toughest questions or ask them on your behalf, you will make better decisions using your own faculties. And so to me, it didn't occur to me that manipulation when I started this industry was a role that journalists could play. But for the most part, that's all
0: changed in the past few years with the rise of made up news stories on the internet.
2: A fake story alleging Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman, John Podesta, were involved in a child sex ring. At and
0: the spread of misinformation.
2: Alternative facts to that. But the point remains Wait
3: a alternative facts. And alternative
0: the election fact. of a president who's declared war on the mainstream media.
3: A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They
0: are the enemy of the people. So, now that we're living in an era of fake news, how do we even begin to understand who's manipulating whom? Here's Ali Velshi on the TED stage.
3: Part of the problem is that when the president of the United States is uh, encouraging his supporters to believe that the media is not just out of touch or somewhat ineffective, but it's actually lying, it causes a problem. And that's just one in a range of problems that are caused by this fake news phenomenon. At its lowest level, it's a time suck. It confuses you. It causes you to uh, spend your time trying to discern between fake news and real news, and I think over time it can blunt your ability to actually do so. I'll give you an example. A BuzzFeed study said that in 2016, of the top 20 fake news stories on Facebook, they had 8.7 million shares, comments, reactions. Of the top 20 real news stories by major news organizations, they had 1.7 million fewer. So fake news is crowding out real news. It means that journalists like me, instead of following other stories and giving you new journalism and telling you stories about new things, we're busy debunking myths. And that's part of the problem that we've got.
0: When did you start to notice that just objectively false news stories, lies, uh, ma- sort of masking as real news stories were, uh, were happening and were, were starting to influence people?
3: So I had known as a journalist that there were websites that were peddling uh, misinformation or false information. And I'd certainly known it from other countries. So for instance, I covered, uh, not in person, but from here, I covered the war in Rwanda. And that was... Almost entirely fueled by what we now know to be fake news. It Mm -hmm. was radio stations that would perpetuate myths against a particular ethnic group and would do that. And when I studied it more, I found out that that happened in Nazi Germany a lot. And it's actually pretty pervasive. But we assumed that with the degree of digital penetration we have in the United States, people had the wherewithal to say, oh, that's a lie. Or this is a kooky conspiracy. Because I can just look it up. I can can look it up, it up, And one thing that I have learned is that a lot of people don't triangulate. When I say triangulate, they don't have three independent reference points in which to say, oh, that's interesting. I I listen to NPR. I read the Wall Street Journal, and I listen to this radio show. And only the radio show is saying that uh, Hillary Clinton is running a uh, sex slave ring out of a basement of a pizza parlor in suburban D.C. Strange that the other ones wouldn't cover that because you'd think that that was a good story. And – If you don't know that there are other sources who are reporting on something differently or not reporting on it at all, you don't necessarily know that your news source might not be telling you the truth. And not only that, speaking of manipulation, you are now um, so beholden to that news source, you're so into it that you will be convinced that the others are lying to you. Uh, On December 4th, I tweeted this out, and notice in the bottom it was retweeted 11,000 times. I tweeted, uh, breaking news, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers halts the Dakota Access Pipeline work telling the Standing Rock Reservation that the current route for the pipeline will be denied. This is a very controversial issue. I had this news earlier than most people did, which is why it spread so many times, because people wanted to distribute this information. But one of the first responses I got to this tweet was, what's your source? Now come on, I'm not a journalism student. I'm a veteran journalist in my 24th year of this business. If I spread breaking news that is false or wrong, I am going to at the very least get disciplined and I could actually get fired. But increasingly, I am getting pushback on social media from people who accuse me of purveying fake news. They will, if you put in my name on uh, you know, my handle and fake news, hashtag fake news, you'll see things show up. And when you delegitimize journalism and when you delegitimize facts and when you do that, you create a vacuum in one of the most important checks in civil, economic and political discourse. It's very, very dangerous. It worries me a great deal because, you know, in years gone by, I actually worried about being accurate.
1: Hmm.
3: Now I worry about being accurate as much as I always did, possibly more so. But I also worry about the accusation that comes uh, on Twitter with the hashtag fake news. Anybody who doesn't agree with my perspective now labels me a liar. And how do I deal with that? Allie, I hear you. I hear your
0: commitment and your passion and, and all of these things you're saying. But it seems like you're on the losing side. It seems like manipulative news is winning.
3: Yeah. And as a numbers guy, I would say that that's Quite possible. But they're winning because the parties in play have not acknowledged that they're winning. They have not sort of said it. Facebook is starting to face that reality. Google is looking at it. We're looking at the money that is made. It just pays better to have fake news. Fake news takes none of the resources that it takes for me to do a story. doesn't need the producers. If you're making stuff up, you don't actually need fact checkers and researchers and people like that. It is much cheaper to make fake news and it's much more lucrative because you don't have to actually make people want to read the headline because you've invented the headline. So once we all decide that this is really dangerous, Facebook will build the right algorithms and they'll redo their revenue streams so that they're not rewarding that kind of dishonest behavior. We'll all start to figure it out and I think we'll be able to shore up our end and push forward and change things. Remember what journalism is meant to do. It has two purposes. The first one is to bear witness, to simply be there to say that something is happening. But the second one is more important. It's to hold power to account And together, let's not go down a road where we end up in a world where not only are we not speaking truth to power, but we're not even able to discern the truth. Thank you. Ali Velshi. He's an anchor
0: and co-host at MSNBC. You can see Ali's full talk at TED.NPR.org. On the show today, ideas about how our actions, our thoughts, even our memories can be manipulated when most people think of memory they think of like a hard drive in our brain that just records things and etches it into our brain yes and from time to time we can recall those events with a fair amount of accuracy is is that true
2: well that that metaphor is not a good metaphor I have learned through my work, through, you know, now decades of studying uh, the malleability of memory, that uh, under certain circumstances, it it is not reliable. It is easily manipulated.
0: This is Elizabeth Loftus. She's a professor of psychology at UC Irvine. And Elizabeth not only studies how our memories can be flawed, but how they can be controlled and altered and manipulated. Elizabeth explains her idea from the TED stage.
2: I'd like to tell you uh, about a legal case that I worked on involving a man named Steve Titus. Titus was a restaurant manager. He was 31 years old, about to be married. She was the love of his life. And one night, the couple went out for a romantic restaurant meal. They were on their way home. And they were pulled over by a police officer. You see, Titus's car sort of resembled a car that was driven earlier in the evening by a man who raped a female hitchhiker. And Titus kind of resembled uh, that rapist. So the police took a picture of Titus, they put it in a photo lineup, they later showed it to the victim. And she pointed to Titus's photo. She said, that one's the closest. The police and the prosecution proceeded with a trial. And when Steve Titus was put on trial for rape, the rape victim got on the stand and said, I'm absolutely positive that's the man. Titus was convicted. He proclaimed his innocence. His family screamed at the jury. His fiance collapsed on the floor sobbing, and Titus is taken away to jail. Titus lost complete faith in the legal system, and yet he got an idea. He called up the local newspaper. He got the interest of an investigative journalist. And that journalist actually found the real rapist, a man who ultimately confessed to this rape, a man who was thought to have committed 50 rapes in that area. And when this information was given to the judge, The judge set Titus free. Titus was so bitter, and so he decided to file a lawsuit against the police and others whom he felt were responsible for his suffering. And and that's when I really started working on this case, trying to figure out, how did that victim go from, that one's the closest, to, I'm absolutely positive that's the guy. I was asked to work on Titus's case, because I'm a psychological scientist, I study memory, I've studied memory for decades, and if, if I meet somebody on an airplane, we ask each other, what do you do, what do you do? And I say, I study memory. They usually want to tell me how they have trouble remembering names, or they've got a, a relative who's got Alzheimer's or some kind of memory problem. But, but I have to tell them, I don't study when people forget. I study the opposite. When they remember things that didn't happen or remember things that were different from the way they really were, I study false memories. In one project in the United States, information has been gathered on 300 innocent people, 300 defendants who were convicted of crimes they didn't do. They spent 10, 20. 30 years in prison for these crimes, and now DNA testing has proven that they're actually innocent. And when those cases have been analyzed, three-quarters of them are due to faulty memory, faulty eyewitness memory. Well, why? Like the jurors who convicted those innocent people and the jurors who convicted Titus, Many people believe that that memory works like a recording device. You just record the information, then you call it up and play it back when you want to answer questions or identify images. But decades of work in psychology has shown that this just isn't true. Our memories are constructive. They're reconstructive. Memory works a little bit more like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and change it, but so can other people.
0: It's it's an amazing story, Um, and and I know that you you do a lot of this kind of work as a legal expert, but you also do run these kinds of experiments in your lab, right?
2: Yes. Uh, One of my early experiments involved showing people a simulated accident where a car goes through an intersection with a stop sign, for example, and by asking a single leading question that suggests it was a yield sign we can get lots and lots of people to believe and remember they saw a yield sign instead of a stop sign. We then, in later work, went even further and planted entire memories into the minds of people for things that never happened. So we've made people believe that when they were five or six years old, they were lost in a shopping mall. Other scientists who work in my field have made people believe that they were attacked by a vicious animal or that they had a serious accident or that they were even witnessed demonic possession. It's not that hard to get people to believe and remember things that didn't happen. How? How do you do that? The way we did our Lost in the Mall study, our original Lost in the Mall study, was I wanna talk to you about your your memories. We've been talking to your mother and your mother told us some things that happened to you when you were about five years old. And so we just wanna ask you about these experiences. And then I might present you with three true memories, things your mother told me really did happen to you when you were five or six years old. And then a made up scenario about you being lost in the mall, frightened, crying, rescued and brought back together with the family. And uh, in our original study, about a quarter of these ordinary men and women fell sway to the suggestion and began to remember all are part of this made up experience about mm. being lost in the mall. So, so that's one example of how we have used a pretty strong form of suggestion to get people to develop what we're now calling rich false memories.
0: H- have you ever? realize that you hold false memories?
2: Uh, Well, personally, I had kind of an amazing uh, experience. I have to preface this with the fact that when when I was 14 years old, my mother drowned in a swimming pool. Mm. And, you know, jump ahead. Decades later, I went to a 90th uh, birthday party of one of my uncles. And one of my relatives told me that I was the one who found my mother's body. And I said, no. It, no, it didn't happen. And this relative was so positive that I went back from that family reunion and I started thinking about it and I started maybe visualizing it. And I started to think maybe it really did happen. I started to make sense of other facts that I did remember in light of this news. Uh, and. Then my relative called me up a week later and said, I made a mistake. It wasn't you. Huh. And, and so I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I just had the experience wow. of my my subjects where wow. someone convincingly tells you and you start to visualize and you start to feel it. And uh, and then and then it wasn't true. When you feed people misinformation about some experience that that they may have had, you can distort or contaminate or change their memory. Misinformation is everywhere. We get misinformation not only if we're questioned in a leading way, but if we talk to other witnesses who might consciously or inadvertently feed us some erroneous information, or if we see media coverage about some event we might have experienced, all of these provide the opportunity for this kind of contamination of our memory.
0: In just a moment, we're going to hear more from Elizabeth Loftus on the ethics of memory manipulation. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to Samsung Home Appliances, helping you take on the holidays with new kitchen appliances. Stream holiday tunes, manage shopping lists, and see who's at the front door right from your family hub refrigerator. And multitask by cooking two separate dishes at the same time with the Flex Duo range. Save over 30% on select kitchen packages at the Samsung Get Ready to Get Together event. Shop now at your local retailers or samsung.com. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you confidence when it comes to buying a new home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand all the details so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica?
2: Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about manipulation, how outside forces can alter and control how we view the world, even how we remember it. And just before the break, psychologist Elizabeth Loftus was describing some of the experiments she's conducted on memory manipulation. Here's more from Elizabeth on the TED stage.
2: If I plant a false memory in your mind, Does it have repercussions? Does it affect your later thoughts, your later behaviors? Our first study planted a false memory that you got sick as a child, eating certain foods, hard-boiled eggs, dill pickles, strawberry ice cream, and we found that once we planted this false memory, people didn't want to eat the foods as much at an outdoor picnic. The false memories aren't necessarily bad or unpleasant. If we planted a warm, fuzzy memory involving a healthy food, like asparagus, we could get people to want to eat asparagus more. And so what these studies are showing is that you can plant false memories, and they have repercussions that affect behavior long after the memories take hold. Well, along with this ability to plant memories and control behavior, obviously comes some important ethical issues. Like, when should we use this mind technology And should we ever ban its use?
0: Just the suggestion of 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 doing that—it was like making my heartbeat faster because it just seems crazy. The opportunity to abuse this technology just seems infinite.
2: If I could just give you a counter, you know, example that might make you think about maybe maybe under some circumstances this would be a good idea. There. Are clinical studies of uh, a drug called propranolol that's being used to dampen or weaken the memories of traumatic event. It's thought that these weakened memories will be less likely to result in post traumatic stress disorder. Let's say you were mugged and traumatized and hit, you know, in a park and end up in an emergency room. You could potentially be offered this drug, it would weaken your memory and reduce the chances you would develop post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: I'm not comfortable with that. I have to be honest with you. Um,
2: I, mean, I know a lot of people aren't.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I, um, I obviously understand the benefits of it, but it, it seems so dangerous. I mean, it seems like science fiction.
2: So then, okay, uh, you don't want to do it. Maybe some other people do. Do they get to? I mean, I don't know,
0: right? I mean, that that's that's a big ethical question that we have to ask, right?
2: It's a huge ethical question
0: because our memories tell us who we are. where we 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 know who we are because of what we believe we have been. We, without our memory, we're not we're just a a meat suit, right? We're, we don't have anything else.
2: It's interesting. I would agree with you, memory, you know is the basis for our identity and tells us who we are. But part of memory may tell us who we want to be. There is scientific evidence that we distort our own memories in a positive or prestige-enhancing direction without anybody else intervening. So people remember that their grades were better than they really were. They remember that they gave more to charity than they really did. They remember that they voted in elections that they didn't vote in. They remember that their kids walked and talked at an earlier age than they really did. All of these prestige-enhancing memories Distortions can occur in the minds of people who are otherwise trying to be honest. So what does that say about how memories are our identity? Maybe memories are who we would prefer to be. So what could be the benefits of this malleable memory system? There's no one right answer, but I actually envision a future where we might be really really effective at de- designer memories and then we're going to have to be asking the question when when we're really good at this mind technology are we going to ever affirmatively use it to help people or would that be a bad idea
0: elizabeth loftus she's a professor of law and psychology at uc irvine you can find her full talk at ted.com So we've just been hearing from Elizabeth about how easy it is to manipulate memories through the power of suggestion. But what if we could take it one step further? So, Steve, first of all, introduce yourself. Tell me your first and last name,
4: and what do you do? Sure. Uh, My name's Steve Ramirez, and I'm an assistant professor of neuroscience at Boston University.
0: And Steve's research is focused on a different kind of memory manipulation. And his interest in this, it all began with a breakup.
4: Yeah, uh, so it turns out breakups are not fun. It was during his first year of grad school. And I was going through a, a pretty, like, tra- I would say traumatic in quotes uh, breakup. And during that
0: breakup, Steve started to relate to a character he'd seen in a movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, with Jim Carrey.
4: And uh, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet,
0: of course, yeah. And uh, what what's the story again?
4: yeah, so the premise is that uh, you know, this is sometime in the near future where you can go in and erase memories. She's there with this guy. And she looks at me like she doesn't even know who I am. And then this couple that recently broke up were so debilitated by their once fond memories of each other that, uh, Jim Carrey's character wants to go in and have a small procedure where they erase those memories. Actually creating a map of your brain. Okay, let's get started. And then as those memories are being erased, he starts realizing, like, maybe, maybe I don't want to erase them, or maybe if I do erase them, it's going to change my identity. Please, let me keep this memory just this one. Are you doomed to repeat the past if you, don't, if you can't remember it? So the premise of the movie is, would you do it?
0: Um, you are a neuroscientist. You study the brain.
4: Yes. is that is that movie like
0: plausible in any way?
4: So, yes and no. Um, the idea that you can erase a memory, like, yeah, I mean, like we you can see cases of amnesia that happens during a particular kind of brain damage or Alzheimer's or things like that. So we know that memories can be erased. It's just a matter of how, like what's what's the intervention in the brain that's leading to memory erasure. And in the movie, it kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater a little bit too much because you don't have to get rid of the entire memory of this person and the breakup and the sights and sounds and smells. So given what we know about neuroscience these days, we can go in and try to suppress, for example, the emotional components of a memory, but leaving the memory of what happened intact.
0: So that difficult breakup Steve had in college, it eventually led him to design a research experiment a lot like the one in the movie he tells a story on the ted stage and just a quick note steve was joined on stage by his former collaborator shu lu who sadly passed away in 2015.
4: for the longest time all i would do is recall the memory of this person over and over again wishing that i could get rid of that gut-wrenching visceral blah feeling now as it turns out i'm a neuroscientist so i knew that the memory of that person and the awful emotional undertones that color in that memory are largely mediated by separate brain systems. And so I thought, what if we could go into the brain and edit out that nauseating feeling, but while keeping the memory of that person intact? And then I realized maybe that's a little bit lofty for now. So what if we could start off by going into the brain and just finding a single memory to begin with? Could we jumpstart that memory back to life, maybe even play with the contents of that memory? All that said, there is one person in the entire world right now that I really hope is not watching this talk. (laughs) (laughs) As neuroscientists, we work in the lab with mice trying to understand
1: how memory works. And today, we hope to convince you that now, we're actually able to activate a memory in the brain at the speed of light. To do this, there's only two simple steps to follow. First, you find and label a memory in the brain. And then you activate it with a switch.
4: As simple as that.
0: Well, their experiment was a little more complicated than that. Basically, Steve and Shu brought a bunch of mice to their lab and then looked at the memory region of their brains, called the hippocampus, and then they shot pulses of light into certain cells that were associated with a specific memory. The idea was to implant a new memory in place of the old one. It's a technique called optogenetics
4: opto meaning light and then genetics of course because genetics like that's how we go in and start engineering these brain cells and it's it's literally shooting a laser into the brain it's it's a small optic fiber that's about the width of a cocktail straw Hmm. and you can uh gently nestle it in whatever brain area you would like and then shoot light onto that brain area and then see what happens when you turn those brain cells on and we did that successfully uh with a memory
0: oh wait hold on one sec What was the memory you were trying to reactivate? Like, I don't know, like the mouse was like eating a big piece of cheese or something like that.
4: So mice can form a million and one different kinds of memories. But we wanted to start with one where we could say, okay, the animal looks like it's recalling the memory or not. Like we wanted it to be as binary as it gets. And to do that, uh, we chose to try to activate a mildly negative memory. And not because we're evil scientists in white coats and you want to give these mice a negative experience. No, it's that... Recalling a negative memory in animals is easier uh, to look at and say, well, if the animal is recalling a negative memory, usually what they do is they just huddle in a corner and remain immobile. We call it freezing behavior mm. because the animal looks like it's freezing in place. So we were trying to reactivate a freezing response. Like, did the animal freeze when we turned the light on? Because if so, it begins to support the idea that the animal is recalling. A negative memory, yeah. which uh, we had successfully demonstrated. Right.
0: So okay. So the mouse freaks out or it gets really scared because all of a sudden you've probably triggered a memory of it being, you know, cornered by a cat or something. I just I watched a lot of Tom and Jerry, but who knows <laughs> what it was? It was some some bad experience. And mm-hmm. uh, and then what happened when you removed the shining light from from the brain?
4: Then the behavior goes back to normal. It doesn't show evidence of recalling a memory anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, that's good and bad. So. That's good because it means, you know, we, we say that those effects are quote-unquote reversible because you can induce memory and then you can reverse it and go back to some kind of baseline. It's not good if you're trying to reprogram the brain permanently and especially in a therapeutic manner, which is some of the stuff that uh, my lab currently does now, which is what if you turn those brain cells on and off a lot? What if you chronically stimulate those brain cells to try to induce some kind of therapeutic-like changes in the brain?
0: Yeah. I mean, you could imagine, and we're not there yet, we're very far away from this, but you could imagine taking somebody who experienced uh, trauma or, or or a veteran from war who, who was suffering from PTSD and activating neutral memory in their brain so as to prevent them from re-experiencing that trauma.
4: So exactly. And it's not at all crazy because it's something that You know, we're not going to go in and start doing optogenetics in human brains to try to manipulate memories anytime soon. But what we try to do is say, well, okay, so mouse brains are like a 1988, I don't know, Toyota Camry. And then human brains are probably like a 2030 Lamborghini. So they work slightly differently. But the principles of how wheels move, the principles of how an engine starts are still there. They're still conserved. So we can still learn a lot about... Uh, human brains by having an ongoing dialogue between rodent researchers and human brain researchers. Hmm. And for me personally, I see a world where we can reactivate any kind of memory that we'd like. I also see a world where we can erase unwanted memories. Now, I even see a world where editing memories is something of a reality because we're living in a time where it's possible to pluck questions from the tree of science fiction and to ground them in experimental reality. And finally, what do we make of all this? How do we push this technology forward? These are the questions that should not remain just inside of the lab. So let's think together as a team about what this all means and where we can and should go from here.
0: I mean, you have to think that, that this technology could fall in, into the wrong hands. I mean, somebody could want to implant false memories in, in a person or, or eliminate important memories that, that could bear witness.
4: I mean, th- that's the path we're heading down. You know, the, the way I think about it is Everything under the sun could be used for good and bad. And now you know, Mark Twain has this great quote that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So we could take lessons from the history of science and ask the last time technological game changers happened, what did people do good and what did people do bad? And like, when it went bad, why did it go bad? So, for instance, one thing that we can take a lesson from is from the Human Genome Project, which in the 80s was a humongous buzz. And then it was this race to sequence the human genome. And then immediately, of course, people were thinking like, well, what if we can modify our own genomes? Like, this smells a lot like eugenics. Like, how do we how do we prevent that from happening? And what happens is that conversation starts two decades before the human genome was even sequenced. And by starting that conversation 20 years ago, you have the social and ideally legal infrastructure to prevent its misuse. So we can do the same thing. With manipulating memories now that by worrying about it being misused we can have this conversation now two three decades in advance of whenever something like this is possible in people and when day zero gets there we'll have enough social and legal infrastructure where it's on everybody's minds and ideally uh, keep it in a regulated and morally responsible manner
0: but but i mean even if we have all the right conversations i mean even if we don't misuse this technology I'm still a little bit troubled by the potential of this because it, it suggests that nothing is going to be real. Like like everything could
4: potentially be falsified or, or manipulated or invented. And I think that in that case, you know, we basically we reinvent ourselves daily with the new memories that we form. And I think it's more of ideally we could embrace the dynamism that is memory or like we can embrace that by being a reconstructive process, for instance. Uh, some people think that or have shown, for instance, that the same machinery that helps us recall memories, such as the hippocampus, by and large is not just the same machinery that's responsible for false memories, but it's also the same machinery that lets us imagine the future and lets us put ourselves in future scenarios. And then in that case, uh, having a reconstructive you know, chalkboard there is a good thing because we can put ourselves in our mind's eye in future situations and we can imagine what tomorrow is going to be like and we can imagine what we're going to do and recombine elements of our past into something new, into something creative. So there is something to say about, like, the fact that memory is modifiable might also permit for us to be flexible in the way that we imagine the future, which, you know, sort of is one of the core things that define us as humans.
0: Steve Ramirez, he's an assistant professor of neuroscience at Boston University. You can watch the full talk he gave with Shu Lu at TED.com.
3: Your hidden persuasion seems quite sincere. Perhaps my evasion is meaningless fear.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Manipulation, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, and Rachel Faulkner with help from Daniel Shukin and Tony Liu. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: Hey, I'm Kelly
3: McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.